You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, this is Dr. Joy. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, where communities can be disconnected, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. They believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can help build a more connected community. Neighbor to Neighbor. It takes a neighborhood. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. You may find it hard to choose your wardrobe in the morning, but it's easy if you work in a nanotechnology lab. No choice. Bill, you're putting on these little blue booties right now. I suppose I have to do that too? Yes, please. It's not like quarantine, is it? No, this is not a biosafety laboratory. They have similar concerns, but they work more with a sterile environment rather than a particle-free environment. Okay, my booties are on the shoes. I'm ready to go into the lab. And only one's backwards. Can you can tell it's backwards? No. So, Molly, you kept your feet clean with the booties? No, I helped keep the lab clean, Seth. But there was more to my protective outfit than the booties. In the end, I was head to toe in white. That trip to the nanolab is coming up. The lab, by the way, is human-sized. Other than that, we want to think small on this show, really small. The millimeter is too big for our ambitions. It's only a thousandth of a meter, roughly the width of this dime here. But you can still see it. We want smaller. We live in the world of kilometers and meters, and it's hard to imagine a world that is too small to see, the nano world. A nanometer is a billionth of a meter. Visiting this world means shrinking to the world of atoms and the atom gangs we call molecules. Now, my height is 5 foot 6 or 1.68 meters. On the nanoscale, that's 1.68 times 10 to the ninth, or 1,680,000,000 nanometers long. At this size, we can't interact with the nano world easily. Look at your own fingers. They're millions of nanometers long. That's much too big to pick up atoms and molecules. It would be like trying to eat dinner with a fork that's 100,000 miles long. Okay, that's one way to diet. But the nano world does interact with our world in some profound ways. But first, we have to get to know the physical world at this scale. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. It's Nano Nano on Big Picture Science. Okay, so now it's time to switch on my Acme shrinkage machine. Let's see, the code here is, and just turn the dial down to a billionth of a... Okay, we're getting smaller. Can you feel that, Molly? Yes. We're getting smaller. The chairs and the tables in this studio, I mean, look at them. They're rising up like skyscrapers. Okay, we're now the height of the dime on Seth's desk. A thousandth of a meter. A bit further we go, and now we're entering the micrometer scale. Stuff we can't usually see with the naked eye. That includes blood cells, just a few microns across. Now, a micron is a thousand times smaller than a millimeter. Glad there's no blood here, though. No, but there is that friendly dust mite. 400 microns long. Look at those eight legs in action. Yuck. Doesn't anyone dust around here? The dust mite they're munching on skin flakes is as big as an elephant when you're on the micro scale like we are. But if we were to scale him up to the size of a real elephant, his body would collapse. We'll get to that later in the show. Meanwhile, downward. That mite is a colossal giant in the world that awaits us. Now we've landed in the atomic world. We're standing among atoms that form the desk that we sat at a moment ago. The atoms are the size of beach balls. Yep. It's very quiet, Seth. There's no sound. Well, that's because we're smaller than a molecule of air, Molly, and sound is the motion of air. But if it helps, we have poetic license for some atomic sound to represent the buzz of the electrons zipping around as if they had too much caffeine. This is the nanoscale. Atoms themselves can be manipulated in nanotechnology, but that's just one form of this think-small science. You know, the famous physicist Richard Feynman once said, 
there's lots of room at the bottom. It actually looks pretty crowded down here. What does he mean? Well, only that at every size scale that we went through when we shrunk down here, you know, we could build machines. You could build machines that are one-tenth our normal size, one one-hundredth, one one-thousandth, even one billionth. Well, you can't build machines that are a billion times larger than our normal size. So there's plenty of opportunity to build things that are smaller than we are. Now, we'll come back to the nano world in a moment, but... Meanwhile, in the meter-sized world... Which is where the University of California, Berkeley's Marvell Nanofabrication Laboratory resides, with dozens of engineers and chemists creating all sorts of tiny electronic devices, from sensors to micro-electro-mechanical systems, or MEMS, to solar cells. Bill Flounders is the executive director, the guy who asked me to put on those protective booties, as we heard earlier. That allowed me just to pass through the first door of the lab. So I'm in a room right now with containers full of gloves, white coats. Bill is returning with a couple coats here. So next we do a cap, and you notice we're dressing from top down. And that is anything that falls out of your hair, as we cover your hair, then goes onto your shirt, but then we're going to cover your shirt. Okay, so now I'm putting on this white cap. This is a Class 100 clean room, and Class 100 defines the number of particles per cubic foot of air. A standard room that most of us walk around in every day in the offices will be hundreds of thousands to a million particles. The best example I can give you is shake a towel in a sunny room in your house one day, and you'll see a particle-filled environment. You're in a particle-free environment. I look a little bit more like a pastry chef. Yes, indeed. Now, so are you, you're building nanomaterials here at the lab? Is, is that the way to think of it? Or nanostructures, and that is I could be making something at the nanometer scale, either by putting a whole lot of material everywhere, protecting it where I want to keep it, and then getting rid of the rest of the material. That's known as top-down nanofabrication. Or by putting a combination of materials, for example, in a flask, more a chemical reaction, and making the conditions just right so that particles on a nanometer scale form and precipitate out of the solution. So this is what's known as a dicing saw. It has a diamond wheel, approximately two inches in diameter, and that wheel is rotated at extremely high speed, about 25 to 30,000 RPM. Is that a piece of silicon in there? And he is dicing a silicon wafer into individual chips. If I make my sensor at that scale, I can make a whole lot of them and I can make them much cheaper. Or I can integrate them into a system which has maybe a GPS and a radio transmitter and a solar cell on board so it doesn't have to have a battery. Okay, going to yet another door. Do you find it hard to think on the nanoscale? Absolutely. It's not just thinking on the nanoscale. We all know that you have to be careful not to micromanage. You can really wreck a project if you nanomanage. It's a nano joke. Okay. <laughs> How do physical properties change when you move to the nanoscale? It depends on the physical property, but that is what's unique. So nanotechnology for many years, or nanofabrication, simply defined that I was making things smaller and smaller and smaller. But we're at the point now for several materials or for several physical properties where the physical property changes when the material is at that small length scale. One of the reasons being, for example, the surface area to volume ratio, the surface area becomes a large portion or perhaps a majority of the material. So think of an extremely small particle, like a particle of metal. When I have a particle of metal big enough that I can see to the human eye, the amount of that particle that's surface, or the number of atoms that are surface compared to the number that is inside and is bulk, the surface is a small amount. But when I now have a five nanometer diameter particle, the surface constitutes a majority of the atoms of the particle, and those surface chemical bonds are in many cases weaker than the internal bulk bonds. And therefore, the melting point of a metal has been demonstrated it can be decreased by up to 200 degrees centigrade once I'm below a certain size diameter. So atoms behave differently when there's a few atoms rather than millions of atoms. The atoms are behaving the same way they always have, but I'm measuring a smaller number of them. And so the physical property that I go measure is representative of a very small number of atoms instead of for decades, for centuries, we've been measuring physical properties associated with billions and trillions of atoms. So integrated circuits are one type of nanofabricated device, 
but we're using the same tools that were used to make integrated circuits now to make a whole lot of other devices. Such as what? Can you just give me, in some ways, a laundry list so we have an idea of just how many things are going to the nanoscale? The first item that comes to mind is MEMS. That is a microelectromechanical system, or now, of course, we say NEMS for nanoelectromechanical system. So instead of just worrying about the electrical properties of the material, I worry about its mechanical properties, and I want to have things that can move fabricated on a nanometer scale. An example would be the tiny motors and gears of micromotors. The micromotors used perhaps to propel a chemical sensor throughout a living organism. A laundry list, chemical sensors, next generation photovoltaic devices, next generation radio transmitting devices. Another project we have here is focused on thermoelectric generators. That is a device that takes a temperature difference and turns this into an electric current. It's estimated that over 60% of the energy produced in this country is lost as waste heat. So a thermoelectric generator's whole job or whole goal is to capture some of that waste heat and use that to generate electricity. How does that become more efficient at the nanoscale? The device I'm referring to is a nanowire, a silicon nanowire-based thermoelectric generator. A very long but very small diameter piece of silicon and a large array of them. When I have a very narrow wire of silicon, it's still an excellent electrical conductor. But when the diameter gets very small, it no longer becomes a good heat conductor. And a thermoelectric generator, I want the odd combination of material that conducts electricity very well, but conducts heat poorly. And there's few common examples that people even think of. You think of a piece of metal. It conducts electricity well, it conducts heat well. So it's a very odd combination to have a good electrical conductor, but poor thermal conductor. But I can achieve that with a silicon nanowire when it becomes a very small diameter because electrons move through it in the lengthwise direction just fine. But the vibrations associated with thermal transport don't work well on a very small diameter structure. Now we've talked about Moore's law, the number of transistors that you can put on a chip. Is there a limit to how small you can go to how much you can actually put on a chip, for example? Yes, there is, but that is exactly the limit that everyone is trying to extend. And the expression I enjoy most is the large number of projects here whose focus is more than more. And that is, can I increase the density of devices to a certain point? Yes, but what becomes a fundamental limit there? Is it the waste heat or is it the amount of energy I'm trying to put into a very small area? So there's a whole research project here, a large number of faculty working on more energy efficient electronics. And that is, all right, I'm going to reach the fundamental physical limit of how many I can put into a very small area, but I'm going to have them use less electricity each. And therefore, they can accomplish more than they did when I was making them and they were each using one volt. Now they're each using a tenth or a hundredth or a thousandth of a volt. And therefore, I have a much more efficient system. All right, so this is towards the exit. Now we take off our coats and things? Absolutely, and for degowning, we go in reverse. So I take my coat off first, then my glasses. Thank you very much for this tour. It's been my pleasure. Please come back again. Bill Flounders is the executive director of the Marvell Nanofabrication Laboratory at the University of California at Berkeley, a part of CITRUS, Center for Information Technology Research in the Interest of Society. So his team is building materials on the nanoscale, where, thanks to my Acme shrinking machine, we are now. Seth, a lot of these atoms around us are vibrating pretty fast. Yeah, exactly. And don't let them hit you because, you know, they could do some damage. Could one of the atoms break away from its molecule and roll over us? Uh, the atoms won't break away from their molecules, but they do move around and very quickly on the scale where we are. But what is the advantage in building here on the nanoscale? Well, there are a couple of advantages. One is by building these things very small, you can make a product that you can carry around in your pocket. For example, in the old days, if you made a binary switch for a computer, you know, that's the building block of a computer processor that's inside your laptop, decides if a bit of data is a one or a zero, you'd need two vacuum tubes and a bunch of other components. That one switch would take up as much room as a coffee cup. But, you know, see the atoms around here? Take several thousand of those, and with today's nanotech, you can just about make a switch that size. Then you could put billions of switches on a chip the size of that dime on my desk. Well, you mentioned a couple of advantages. What's another? Well, the physics is a little different down here in the nano world. Uh, you see that cloud of electrons there? Oh, right there? There? Yep. Wait, 
Yeah, there? Well, yeah, we see, Molly, that's the thing. We don't know exactly where the electrons are at any given time. That's quantum mechanics. The physical rules are different on this scale. But, as it turns out, that gives engineers a whole new set of tools for building incredibly sensitive sensors, smaller laptops, other nifty devices. Coming up, biomedical nanotechnology and the ethics of fiddling on this quantum scale. Hang on just a second, and by the way, in that second, your fingernail just grew a nanometer longer. It's Nano Nano on Big Picture Science. Hey, you don't always have to think small. Our galaxy, which is a million trillion trillion times bigger than Molly and I are right now, could be home to countless habitable worlds. By becoming a Team SETI member, by joining Team SETI at SETI.org, you'll support the work of scientists at the SETI Institute who are searching for life on those worlds. Plus, if you send an email to the radio show staff at bigpicturescience at SETI.org, we'll send you a photo that's out of this world of the radio show staff, SETI.org, and bigpicturescience at SETI.org. Think big. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So here we are, milling with the atoms that make up the desk in the studio. My Acme shrinking device has brought us to this tiny world, the nanoscale. Normally you can't hear atoms, but we've taken some creative liberties. So what you hear is what we like to call over-caffeinated electrons. There are two kinds of nanotechnology. One is bottom-up, assembling new devices at this scale where we are, atom by atom. The other is top-down, still starting very small, but carving out what you want. For example, the way a transistor is etched on a silicon wafer. Now, take that technique and put it in a biotechnology lab, and you have a novel way of fighting disease. Joseph D. Simone and his team at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill have created nanoparticles that mirror some of the key properties of red blood cells. But first, a particle-to-cell size check. Our cell would be about 10,000 nanometers in diameter, and we make things that may only be 50 nanometers, so really, really small. These tiny particles made from a soft hydrogel using a method called print could go after cancer cells. Thinking a little bigger, De Simone uses this technology to create synthetic red blood cells as well. Joe, let's begin with a picture of the journey that this synthetic red blood cell would take. Once it's injected into a human body, can you just describe for me what happens? Well, it's designed to mimic a real red blood cell. So what's, uh, what's interesting is a, a red blood cell circulates typically for about 120 days. And when it's young, during the majority of that period, it's very deformable. And it's, that's important because a red blood cell is fairly large. It's about 8 microns in humans. And it has to squeeze through pores in various organs, especially the spleen, that are much smaller than the diameter of, of the cell. So when you say it's deformable, you mean flexible. It, can, it needs to be nimble. It's squishy. And, <laughs> okay. it's, it's, uh, and it's able to squeeze through these pores. But when a red blood cell starts getting older, it gets stiff and rigid and it can't fit through these pores, and that's how the body will remove an old red blood cell and distinguish it from all the young red blood cells that pass through. Okay, and the synthetic red blood cells that you're creating would mimic this process? Yes, so we designed a series of particles that we vary their level of squishiness so that we could begin looking at the role that that deformability or squishiness plays on how things distribute in the body. But you're also creating nano-sized vehicles, I understand, to deliver drugs as well as oxygen, which is what red blood cells do. Yeah, exactly right. So there's a lot of value, we believe, in the ability of particles to be deformable, to squeeze through other sorts of barriers. And one important one would be in a solid tumor. How much do these particles penetrate the tumor? And so we designed smaller particles that are also as squishy 
and then we've attached different types of chemotherapy agents so that we could physically depot them into a tumor as opposed to circulating and going to places that they're not wanted or needed to develop a more effective targeted therapy. And in the case of synthetic blood, I, I want to, I'll come back to the tumor in a moment, but in the case of creating synthetic blood, you might do this for the cases where there just is not human blood available. Yeah, it's absolutely. So we think there's a lot of emergency situations, maybe first responders or on national disasters uh, of different types and maybe even the battlefield where one would like to have in an emergency situation an oxygenated fluid that in fact might not even have to be refrigerated. And so we're beginning to explore all those issues too. With the issue of um, with the method of delivering drugs this way, now how does being treated by a nanoparticle through this method of delivery that you've created, an improvement on traditional pills, for example, in the case of cancer? So what's interesting is that cancer cells divide faster than normal cells. And so they take in nutrients and other things. And so the current way most chemotherapies work is that you basically throw in a poison all over the place in the body through an IV, for example, or oral, and those cells that divide faster take up the drug more quickly than the other cells, but your other cells still take them up as well, and that's why you know, your hair follicles have trouble and, and you lose your hair and the lining of your stomach, and that's how you get nauseous. And so with a particle, we can have a local delivery instead of a systemic delivery. But how do you create particles that know where to go, know which cells to attack and which ones to stay away from? Well, the first characteristic is, are there some characteristics of the particle size, shape, and deformability that because of those characteristics, it actually physically gets trapped in a tumor uh, rather than circulate everywhere? And so that's the first approach. And then we also then decorate the surface of the particles with chemical groups that recognize unique chemical groups on the cancer cells for another level of, of safety. Now, Joe, I want to get to the, the method of how you create these synthetic particles, but there is a slight resistance, and I can feel it in me, the idea that something that's been manufactured is being stuck into my bloodstream. Uh, yeah, no, I can appreciate that. Uh, you know, I think when you actually look at it a little more closely, for example, the chemistry that we would choose to make into a nanoparticle, we're using a similar uh, chemistry that one uses to make, for example, a bioabsorbable suture. So those stitches that go away after a few months. We can now take that same type of material and mold that into a particle so it just dissolves into a metabolite, something your body already generates. And so we can make them uh, really benign and then you load them up with different chemotherapy agents and deliver less of it to where you want it so it's actually more effective. Mm, amazing. You know, it's fascinating. You must be thinking on the nanoscale often in a way that the rest of us really don't. But for you, on the nanoscale, the world is incredibly varied, isn't it, when you really get down to the size of cells and so forth? Oh, it's, it's a remarkable world. It's a world in and of itself. And it's a, it's a fascinating one, and, and there's a lot of interdependent characteristics, as I mentioned, size and shape and chemistry. And so it's very exciting to sort of unlock the characteristics of this world and begin using those as strategies for designing things like new medicines. Well, the method to manufacture these microparticles is innovative, I understand. And you use something called the PRINT method. That's the acronym, P-R-I-N-T. But do you literally print out, stamp out these little particles? We do. We, it, the technique has its roots in the microelectronics industry. So there's there's two ways of making nanoscale materials, and, and uh, one would be sort of a bottom-up, and there's another world called top-down. And the microelectronics industry has been uh, driving top-down manufacturing to make things like transistors on a computer chip. And so now these sizes for making transistors are about the size of a single virus particle. And so now they're in a size range that one can start thinking about, can we use these tools from the electronics industry and start making things that would be useful in medicine and vaccines? And that's what we've been driving. And it is sort of etched, whereas one might imagine something being built up like a little Lego <laughs> or something, a little Lego creation. It's actually etched and, and carved out. Yeah, it's a templated or molding approach. We kind of Think of this almost like an ice cube tray on a nanoscale, and it, it's basically a film that's fed through rollers in a roll-to-roll -roll process, and we fill them, 
and it, it basically makes particles of exactly the same size and shape in this roll-to-roll format, kind of like the old film industry, or in many ways like making donuts, if you've ever seen donuts come across uh, in a store <laughs> or a bakery. I understand that one of the advantages of this method is it gives you a choice in the sorts of nanoparticles that you create. Exactly. So with a templated approach, you now have control of size and shape. And why that's valuable is, you know, size and shape matters. There's a lot of examples in biology where bacteria or viruses have specific shapes, and those shapes play an important role in how effective those objects are. And so we're trying to sort of take some learnings from biology and use that as new strategies for developing new medicines and vaccines. Well, Joe, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you very much. I appreciate the interest. Joseph D. Simone thinks small about big medical challenges as professor of chemistry at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and chemical engineering at North Carolina State University. Well, Molly, you asked him about the safety concerns with nanoparticles. Right, and he said he's using materials that the body can break down, yet fears remain about nanotechnology in general. What if it gets free of the lab? Maybe nanoparticles would poison the water supply or keep reproducing and cover the earth. The point is, we don't know. But we have to envision what might happen. That job goes to, among other people, David Gustin, director of the Center for Nanotechnology and Society at Arizona State University. The task of his team, assess the ethical and safety concerns of nanotechnology while weighing the benefits. One of the areas that our center is beginning to look at is what kind of benefits might nanomaterials bring to the values of sustainability in the urban context. For example, newer materials, lighter weight materials are going to save enormous amounts of energy in the transportation of things. Similarly, in the transportation sector, batteries that are enabled by nanocatalysts might revolutionize automobile transport. It could also be in the urban context, new materials for building construction would reconfigure what we think cities look like or make the surfaces of buildings that are already existing more functional than simply as facades or structural elements, but also contribute to absorbing solar energy, to lighting the interior, to cleaning themselves and so forth. So there are all these wonderful visions of how nanotechnologies might make urban life more attractive and more sustainable. On the other hand, there are the possibilities, very real with emerging technologies, that because we don't understand entirely what they're all about when we begin to deploy them, that we see effects many years later that had we had some greater insight beforehand, we might have done things differently. One of the concerns, the fear factor in nanotechnology is that we would be ingesting these tiny particles, whether they're floating around in our buildings or whether they're being created in a laboratory to go into our bodies. First of all, we're already inhaling and ingesting and immersing ourselves in nanomaterials. Some of them are naturally occurring nanomaterials. For example, fine particulates from volcanic explosions and dust storms and things like that. Some of them are in diesel exhaust. We know that some of those are no good for us. With respect to some of the new nanomaterials that we're creating, we've got some hints that some are utterly innocuous. We've got some hints that others, like multi-walled carbon nanotubes of a certain length and width, may in fact act in ways that are detrimental to health. We actually can't do traditional toxicology for risk assessment around engineered nanomaterials because, quite frankly, there are just so damn many of them. Right now, with traditional chemicals, The Environmental Protection Agency has a backlog of something like 80,000 different chemicals that are already in commerce that have yet to have a quantitative risk assessment done with them. There are roughly that number of variants of a single engineered nanomaterial. And so if we were to sit down and try to do our standard toxicological testing of engineered nanomaterials, it would take us decades and billions of dollars to run through them. But one area of nanotechnology, nanomedicine, for instance, seems to offer some amazing potential benefits. So how do you weigh risks against something as huge as a cure-all for cancer? We have a relatively well-established, generally supported process for sorting out the risks and benefits of new drugs. One of the challenges with nano in particular is FDA distinguishes between a drug and a device And that distinction creates a regulatory pathway at FDA for testing for safety and efficacy. 
And so with some nanotherapies, it may not be clear whether something is actually a drug that is, has a chemical activity or is a device that is, has a physical or mechanical activity. Now, David, I think it was about 10 years ago, 11 years ago or so, when the head of Sun Microsystems warned about the perils of gray goo. The yes. idea that... Bill Joy, Does the Future Need Us? Wired Magazine 2000. <laughs> and the idea is that you'd create these robots. The only way that they could be effective is that they would be self-replicating. So now you'd have these tiny robots that would be self-replicating, and yep. this would be great because they could clean our homes, you know, clean all the disease out of our bodies, whatever it would be. But the concern that he had was that we would have self-replicating nanobots that we couldn't control, and they would create this kind of gray goo that might take over the world. How real is that scenario? At one level, I'm not technically competent to comment on the reality of it. What I would say is that our center did a survey in 2007, and it turned out that, quite literally, self-replicating nanobots was the least of the public fears, according to our data. What was more important to the public were environmental health and safety concerns, the fear of new nanotechnologies displacing jobs, the fear of nanoweapons, nanoterrorism, nanoarms races, and so forth. Nanobots was quite literally the least of the public's concerns. But if the public isn't worried about Grey Goo in particular... Are they worried about this idea in general that we have a technology that perhaps we can't control? Well, it's just about every technology that we can't control if you take a fairly hard view of the word control. The disaster in New Orleans showed us that levees were not a technology that we could control, even though we've been building levees for several thousand years. We can't control the social consequences of cell phones and email and texting while driving the implications of Facebook beyond the immediate contact with our friends that we like to think is the only reason why we're using it. There are all sorts of technologies that we can't control in that sense. But the question is, can we, in fact, a little bit more self-consciously design individual technologies and technological systems in a way that they serve their intended functions better for the people who want to use them and minimize the kinds of surprises that we get down the line? Finally, David, we've been talking about some of the science and technology policy questions that nanotechnology raises. Does it also raise ethical questions? And if so, what would they be? In my mind, there are a host of ethical questions raised by nanotechnology. Among the first and foremost is how is it that we decide as a society to invest in nanotechnology, to invest in particular areas of nanotechnology, and decide what it is exactly we want to get out of nanotechnology? because it's a distributional question from the beginning. How much are we putting here? How much are we putting there? And because the technologies will have consequences for what different groups get out of them. I think first and foremost, that's an ethical question. And the ethical nature of that question, in my mind, means that we need a broader public dialogue about the priorities for doing nanotechnology research and not just thinking about its applications. David Gustin, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you. David Gustin is a political scientist who studies science and technology policy at Arizona State University, where he also directs the Center for Nanotechnology and Society. Watch out for that water droplet, Molly. Ah! That thing must have been 10,000 microns across. Air conditioner, I think, is leaking again. Coming up, censoring the world. No, not restricting speech, but employing tiny sensors everywhere. Plus, science fiction and size. Nano, nano. On Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Molly and I are living large at the nanoscale. While nanotech devices may pose some risks, they're also able to recognize risks. Nanotech could change our ability to monitor our food and even our planet. The technology company Hewlett Packard is developing in its labs super sensitive sensors that could sniff out bad stuff, even things like bacteria on your vegetables. 
The project's name? The Central Nervous System for the Earth. The idea is to blanket the entire planet with millions of tiny sensors to monitor sight, sound, motion, and even that bad bacteria on your lettuce. Really what we're trying to do is, is instrument very large systems with uh, huge numbers of sensors in order to be able to uh, gather uh, very large amounts of information that we can then use to both understand and control the system. So, so you're trying to put what, eyes and ears and noses and, and fingers or whatever uh, all around the earth? Absolutely. So we are taking the analogy of the human senses. So we have touch, we have smell, we have taste, certainly hearing and vision. Well, we're here at HP Labs, surrounded by relay racks full of equipment, microscopes, of people beavering away on something. Can you describe what this sensor would look like, how big it would be, and what sort of information it would supply to whom? Well, it depends. We have many different sensors that we're working on. Uh, right here in this lab, currently, we're working on a sensor which is intended to be a biochemical sensor system. So we sort of think of that as, as both a sense of, of smell and taste. Uh, it's, it uses light in order to be able to identify molecules on proteins, the, the, the shell of a virus or a, a bacterium, and give us uh, an identity for a single molecule or a single virus. Well, I can imagine something like that would be useful when I go to uh, the supermarket. I might want to scan my lettuce and see if it's you know, contaminated with something. But how does that tie in with the central nervous system for the earth? You're not going to have these things everywhere, are you? Well, if we make them cheaply enough, they can be deployed in, in very large numbers. For instance, we certainly could have them in your cell phone and you could use them in, in the supermarket yourself. Wouldn't it be much better if we actually had them in packing sheds so that you could identify problems when they come in on the truck? So the whole idea behind our project is not to make the best possible sensor, it's to make a very good sensor which is extremely inexpensive and can be networked together to uh, provide that information in, in real time to the people who need it. Have you got any of the sensors around here or any of the parts of sensors? Well, actually, yes. In fact, they're so small that in order to be able to see what's going on, you actually have to use a microscope to see the sensor itself. And so right off over here to my left is a microscope and there is a sensor which is on the objective plane of the microscope. You have a colleague working here. Your, your name is? Uh, Zion Lee. And, and what are you doing here in, in particular today? What, what's your job before dinner today? Oh, well, it's just uh, another fun uh, thing to play with uh, a new sample we are developing here. And uh, we're, we're looking at uh, a possibility to detect uh, molecules with this particular sample. Okay, I'm going to look through the microscope. And I'm looking through it now. And all I see is a bunch of rectangles. Let me try the other eyepiece. Yep, Th fine. Those are the things with... Well, they look kind of uninteresting. They look like gray tiles to me. Exactly. What, what, yep. what, what's in them? Well, it's actually each of the tiles you're looking over there is actually an array of uh, nano structures we made in the lab. And uh, they uh, has the special properties which can capture molecules. And then at the same time, actually, the molecule being trapped can be able to, you know, get it to the, the proper kind of amplification. I know nothing about this, but it seems to me like you're trying to make the, uh, the mechanical equivalent of a dog's nose here. Well, actually, it's, it's more like a, a Venus flytrap that has a very sensitive antenna attached to it. And then you actually beam the information about the identity of the molecule using this sensitive antenna. Stan, you are developing the central nervous system for the Earth. And now, what we've talked about so far, these are sensors that can pick up on things that most sensors can't. My, my camera has a light meter, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about recognizing specific molecules in very minute quantities using technology that can, you know, fit in your pocket. But when you talk about the central nervous system for the Earth, I'm thinking of sensors that might, you know, measure the movement of tectonic plates and you bury these things every hundred feet around the world or something like that. Is that part of the deal here? Oh, absolutely. The, the whole idea, again, because they're so small and, and very inexpensive, we can make them by the millions or even billions and disperse them in a, in a large number of ways. For instance, in cell phones, we can mount them in other products that are sold. We might just plant them along roadsides. And then we uh, have also developed the wireless technology for being able to aggregate that data. So we go all the way from a million sensors 
to a dashboard on somebody's PC that says, hey, you've got a problem, uh, here's what it is, and, and here's my recommended solution. How big are your sensors going to be? Well, the sensors themselves are, are uh, microscopic. You, you need a microscope to even be able to see them at all, and then you can't see the individual sensors because they're nanoscale. However, you have to package them, and so for our case, we need a battery, we need a radio, we need some, some memory, a little bit of processor. So once, once it's all done and said, it winds up fitting into a package that looks like a Hewlett Packard inkjet cartridge because that's the technology that we actually base our, our, our platform on. People talk a lot about nanotechnology. I hear it even at cocktail parties. It seems to be one of those in words. And yet, if you ask people, well, give me an example of nanotechnology, all they know are the kinds of nanotechnology that are routinely deployed in fiction. And in the movies, and usually there's swarms of evil robots or whatever that are very small. Now, the sensors here are nano. The packages are not so nano. They may measure an inch, a couple of inches across and so forth. So the fact that they're nano is only a consequence of the fact that you're trying to find things that are very, very small, right? It isn't that by making it nanotechnology instead of microtechnology or something like that, the whole package gets smaller. Uh, well, again, you know, we're, we're limited by such things as batteries and, and radios, and, and those aren't nano. So our nano detectors are exquisitely sensitive because they are at the same size of the molecules of the viruses that we're trying to detect. But then we need to turn that into a signal that we can broadcast and have a receiver grab that signal and then, and then do something with it. So in the end, the actual system itself is not nano. And in fact, you know, we're very cognizant of, of pollution issues. I mean, we don't want to be throwing lots of inkjet cartridges around. We want to make sure that, that if people deploy them, they come back and pick them up later. You do have to make these things to be recovered and recycled. Do you sometimes have the feeling you're kind of like James Watt at the end of the 18th century? You know, you're making the first foray into a whole new technology? Well, I've been working in this area for over 15 years. And yes, it's exciting every day coming in and just seeing what's going on. I mean, we have microscopes here that enable us to see single atoms. And uh, I, I never cease to be amazed at that fact, uh, given that when I learned when I was a student was that that was impossible. When you look down the pike, you look, you know, 20 years into the future for nanotechnology. What sorts of things do you see that would affect uh, the average citizen? Well, by then it will have so thoroughly become enmeshed in everything that we do that you won't even think about it. Uh, it will be a part of all of our communication systems, all of our computing systems, all of our sensor systems. It will just be a, a, another component and the whole idea of nano just won't be special at all. Stan Williams, thanks so much for talking with me. Uh, thank you very much. That was Seth sensing his way around Hewlett-Packard Labs with Stan Williams, the director of the Information and Quantum Systems Lab there. Well, Seth, it's been fun to be at the nanoscale, but I'm getting hungry, and even though I want just a little something to eat, I don't want it this little. Okay, I gotcha. We can easily go from the world of nanometers back to the world of meters. I mean, I just have to press Control-Undo on my Acme shrinking machine once it warms up. Hey, we'll scale up the way insects do in those crazy science fiction movies. Right, except that we should be meters high and, and ants, for example, shouldn't. Frankly, they wouldn't work if they were eight feet high at the shoulder. Do ants have shoulders? Anyway, you have to suspend your disbelief for that. Yep, and in both directions. Scaling insects up, scaling humans down. As was done in the 1966 movie Fantastic Voyage, which featured Raquel Welch, and in which a team of scientists shrink themselves way down and travel around within a human body. As biologist Michael LaBarbera told me, this runs up against the laws of physics. Oh, the machine is ready. All right, control undo, and up we go. Okay, make it snappy past that dust mite. Problem with being that size is that you are the size of a molecule, and things like Brownian motion affect you, where random attacks of molecules from different directions would bounce you around. The other thing that you really have to ask is, how do you see when you're that size? If you're the size of the wavelength of light, what do your eyes re re receive when you're trying to get an, an image? Um, the other thing that I would really worry about, though, is white blood cells. Um, after all, being a foreign body inside another body, um, your body's defenses are going to come to the rescue. And the last thing I want to do is end up inside a vacuole. Well, 
elaborate a little bit on the kinds of things that look like they would work in Fantastic Voyage but really wouldn't. Uh, you mentioned vision wouldn't work. Yeah, vision wouldn't work, but other more subtle aspects of the biology wouldn't work. I mean, well, the first thing that you have to ask yourself is how did they shrink them? Um, are they making all the atoms somehow smaller? It's possible. There's a lot of empty space in an atom. But in that case, they would be the same weight as they were otherwise. And, and that would be a little difficult if you have a 170-pound um, erythrocyte, red blood cell, um, it's going to go crashing through the, the wall of that artery, and that's going to be the end of it. If what they're doing is taking atoms out, if they're, you know, say, having or, or reducing by a factor of 10 the number of atoms, that's okay. But when you start doing that to some biological molecules like DNA, for example, that can lead to some really significant problems. I mean, the other piece of this is just think about things like circulation. Um, your heart pumps blood through arteries and then arterioles and capillaries and veins. And they're in a capillary, which is about seven microns across, big enough for one red blood cell to fit through. If they're seven microns across and their capillaries are presumably a thousand times smaller, one of the things that we know about fluids is that the resistance of flow through a vessel increases as the radius to the fourth power. That's, that's pretty severe. That means that if you have the d diameter of a vessel, the resistance increases by a factor of 16. You're asking these people to somehow pump blood through a vessel that's several thousand times smaller than normal capillaries. Um, I don't think they'd live very long. Now, Michael, Fantastic Voyage was certainly not the only movie that tried to think small. I mean, that's, that's a recurrent theme in Hollywood. One movie that comes to mind and that I'm old enough to remember, the 1957 classic, The Incredible Shrinking Man. Ah, yes. And, and he takes on, it wasn't a locust, it was a spider. He tries to, you know, wrestle a, a knitting needle or something to use as a weapon. Uh, how, how'd that go? Well, it actually can go pretty well. I mean, if the, we aren't nearly as small as the folks in Fantastic Voyage in this case. Um, so he's a, a couple of inches high. Um, his muscles are going to be disproportionately strong. You've heard that old saw about uh, an ant can lift 50 times its body weight and you can't. This is a simple consequence of scaling. The ability of a muscle to produce force is a function of its cross-sectional area. As you shrink the objects down, masses or weights decrease faster than cross-sectional areas. So small animals, by definition, are disproportionately strong. Um, just think of your kids and think of the things that they used to lift relative to their body weight, as long as it's relative to the body weight. So, so this guy could lift the knitting needle, he could do battle with a spider, and indeed, um, he actually has some advantages because spiders have an open circulatory system. All he has to do is make a hole in the spider, and the spider is going to be, lose blood pressure and be unable to extend its legs. And this is a, an interesting aspect of the biology of arachnids, of spiders, is that they have no muscles to extend the legs. They use blood pressure. So if you puncture them, they're up the creek. My goodness. Well, what about the other tech, making our cells bigger? I mean, this may be a better approach to curing uh, medical conditions, because if you scale somebody up to the size of a, you know, a skyscraper or something, you can go in and, and, and maybe machine gun the uh, invading virus or bacteria, whatever it is. Uh, there's been a couple along that line. There's the Amazing Colossal Man. There's uh, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. Um, and in, to some extent, King Kong, if you're willing to extend human status to another closer related primate. Um, the problem with those movies is they neglect the fact that as far as we know, all mammals produce the same material, bone, to support their bodies. It has the same material properties. And when you get larger, it becomes more and more difficult to design bones that will withstand the kind of loads that a large animal has. Um, you can get bigger to a certain extent, but only if you change proportion. And one of the interesting things about the Amazing Colossal Man or the 50-foot woman is they look like perfectly ordinary human beings that you'd meet on the streets, only just a lot bigger. Um, and the problem with that is that the bones are going to collapse the first time they take a step. One thing that we know about mammals is that most of them are designed with a safety factor, their ability to resist load relative to the loads they normally ex exert of about four to five. 
Um, what that means is that, that if you go stomping down the stairs, you've got about um, a factor of three safety factor in the loads that you're exerting. If, however, you're 20 feet tall, that safety factor goes to zero. Um, and so jumping becomes a, a, an exercise that's certain to get you a broken femur, if nothing else. Um, and this shows up in the movies. I mean, King Kong, in all of the Kong movies, does things that a large animal simply should not do. Um, it's going to be unhealthy for that animal. I'm speaking with Michael LaBarbera, professor of biology at the University of Chicago and author of the online hit, The Biology of B-Movie Monsters. Uh, let's talk a little bit about monsters from outer space, Michael, because you notice that they don't ever scale up uh, puppies or anything like that. <laughs> For some reason, monsters from outer space are usually here on a malevolent mission, it seems to me. And uh, consequently, they want to look like something that uh, we inherently don't find very attractive. So uh, they're always, you know, they're sort of arthropods or you know, scale-up insects or things that we, you know, just have a natural aversion to. But I, I sort of wondered about the giant bugs in that movie because I figured if you really took a bug and scaled them up by a factor of 500 or 1,000, whatever it was, that the bug would just collapse. We've had a couple of movies like that uh, about terrestrial insects that I can actually say more about. There have been giant locusts, there have been giant praying mantises, giant spiders, giant scorpions, giant leeches. Uh, but just sticking with the insects, the problem with scaling up a terrestrial insect and possibly the Starship Troopers bug-like forms is that they have an exoskeleton. They have a skeleton that surrounds their soft tissues. It's like they're wearing a suit of armor. Their soft tissues are supported from the outside by this suit of armor. And that's a really nice design in a lot of ways, but it has some weaknesses. In particular, um, the weakness is that if you load this limb, say, and some force is exerted at it from the outside, it tends to buckle. Um, imagine taking a soda straw. You did this in junior high. I know you did. And you push on the two ends. And at first it bends really smoothly. And at some point it goes bink and it flies across the room. And if you go and retrieve the soda straw and you look at it, it has a crease in the side. And when it went bink, it buckled. Um, the, the edge of the soda straw flips in and then the soda straw collapses. And once that happens, the material is permanently damaged and and you can't walk on it anymore if it happens to be one of your limbs. I, I always tell people if they're attacked in the back alley of Chicago by giant locusts, there was a movie that had them moving through Chicago. Um, all you need is, is uh, six bricks and one for each leg. And once all the legs have buckled, you're fine. All right. Well, Michael LaBarbera, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. Michael LaBarber is professor in Organismal Biology, Anatomy, and Geophysical Sciences at the University of Chicago. So, Seth, not everything works at every scale. Right. And nanotechnology works when it does because scientists understand the physics at that tiny scale and make good use of it. Well, that's our show. Thanks to help made visible every day from Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Keith Rosendahl. Also, support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute, and the SETI Institute, where our show is produced. Also, our listeners, if you want to comment, please visit our Facebook page. You've been listening to Nano Nano on Big Picture Science. Well, Seth, your machine did a good job making us full-sized again. I'm happy to be back in the world of chairs and desks where that dime can't crush me. Yeah, although I have a new appreciation for how seldom we dust around here. I think dust mites are everywhere. Maybe some things are better left unseen. Hi, this is Dr. Joy. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, where communities can be disconnected, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. They believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can help build a more connected community. Neighbor to Neighbor. It takes a neighborhood. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. 
Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.